Hey, well, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we are doing a special episode uh, going through a very particular kind of survey that was just released. I have here with me my uh, my one of my best friends and my coworker, Matt Patrick. Matt, thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be here for this special episode. Yeah, this is our first episode where we get to share a drink together. Uh, so thank yeah, thank you for that. Uh, wouldn't like to have it any other way. What are you drinking, Chase? Boulder Spirits, uh, bourbon, delicious. Um, what about you? Um, Wait, like, what did you say? It sounds demonic. Boulder. Does it? I guess it does. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> I'm drinking not Greek because I'm a good Kentuckian. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, on this uh, podcast, basically what we like to do is explore uh, deep theological topics. We like to talk about things in ways that may not be um, as accessible, not not to be obtuse or anything like that, but just because uh, we care about doctrine, we care about theology, we care about God's church, we care about how that applies to all life. Um, so what's going to happen today, what's unique about this episode is we're actually going through a survey that was just released from Legionnaire Ministries um, called the State of the Church, um, or actually it's State of Theology. Um, so mm-hmm. that's part of what uh, kind of tipped me off yesterday morning. I got this in my inbox and I was like, I definitely want to read that. They release this every two years and Legionnaire was started by R.C. Sproul, who I miss dearly. Um, I wish he was still around um, recently passed in the last couple of years. Um, but what we want to do is kind of walk through this. And actually, I texted Matt last night, the, the survey, and uh, we just looked at a couple questions, right? I haven't looked um, Okay, great. Um, I don't read things unless I have to. <laughs> that's right. So we're going to look at some of these surveys, survey results, and kind of give our take on the data that's presented. So I want to give two qualifiers, not too much to qualify before we get started, but at least two qualifiers. One, the survey results list evangelicals. So it lists uh, people self-reporting. It also lists a general population. That term, that concept, that people group, uh, the denominator, however you want to describe the word evangelical, is under a lot of controversy in terms of if we can still use it, has it been too watered down? It came to prominence in in the mid-20th century to describe a a broad swath of people who were dissatisfied with fundamentalism as an approach to engage culture, and evangelicalism came on the rise as a way to think about how do we engage culture? It kind of got hijacked by the religious right, and in the last election, it really received um, a lot of criticism just because of the people that uh, really voted for Trump and large numbers were evangelicals, and that made a lot of people suspicious of uh, that phrase to describe people's faith. And you'll actually see that in the survey. Uh, can we really call ourselves evangelicals if if some of these people hold these beliefs? Um, I like the phrase because Martin Luther used it to describe the Reformation, but I understand it's under a lot of scrutiny. The other thing I'll say to qualify it is that um, the methodology, I haven't looked into it. I trust Ligonier. I don't have any doubts about the methodology, but in terms of who they surveyed, how they surveyed, response rates, the actual science behind the methodology, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trusting that what they report accurately represents the data. Um, Matt, do you have anything else you want to add or qualify before we get into this? No, I mean I love Ligonier. I'm always annoyed that all the things I do love, they always pick names that I for I think most of my Christian walk I didn't know how to pronounce. <laughs> so that's the thing. But uh, other than that, love those guys and. 
I agree with everything you said. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I actually looked up how to pronounce it earlier. I think it's a valley in Pennsylvania where Sproul was doing ministry. Um, sure, that so makes yeah. perfect sense for your global ministry name. I know. I know. Yeah, we're reaching us, so apparently the well is uh, not That's right. wordy enough or something. It's too easy That's to right. say. Well, let's, uh, let's open this up. What we're going to do is bring it up. If you're listening uh, on a podcast, you won't be able to see this, but we're going to read it as we go. Um, we're not going to spend tons of time. Let's see, which one did we do agree upon? I think that one looks great. Um, so you should be able to see some of this. Um, I'll be scrolling. And what they've got is they've got kind of their takes on the statements, key findings on this first page, um, which I find really helpful. You just go to the stateoftheology.com and it gives you their findings. These are 35 questions that were presented to a variety of people, I assume, uh, and their understanding of uh, those questions. And so you've got kind of a data explorer and then you've got uh, all statements. So a good one here kind of to start us off, um, the statement that was presented to the people taking the survey was God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. So as far as those who identified as evangelical, let's see if that narrows it down. That already. This is going to be, is this going to, do we think this is going to be good or bad, Chase? Let me ask you that before we even get into it. You're going to be depressed. Yeah. You're cool. going to, there's, yeah, it's not, it's not going to be great. Um, so let's see, we're, we're seeing results for the entire population. You can filter this down a lot, um, but I'm just going to filter it by evangelical. Um, so what we see here is the blue. Do you see that, Matt? Yeah. The blue right there is uh, evangelical. So we put a filter on it. 94% of evangelicals agree that God is perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Now, the other segment of the population would be 50% of just the general population who don't necessarily identify as evangelical uh, believe that God would, would agree. And, and the opposite of that would be 23% say God is, would say, I guess, not a perfect being or, or at least could make a mistake. What is your take on that, Matt, as we kind of think about preaching in a post-Christian culture? Well, it's encouraging to see that so many Christians at least believe that God is perfect. Um, that would be a bummer if, if it was 50% of evangelicals did not believe that, because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of theological implications clearly for that. And the reality that uh, if you believe that God can make a mistake, um, that leads it down to some some dangerous roads um, that would not be helpful. But from a missiological standpoint, when you think through it, of um, that 50% of the population, you said, yeah doesn't agree with that. That's a fascinating thing. I think you'd probably have to contextualize that down to where you're preaching. Sure. Um, but in general to go that what that tells me in my head, my, my head goes, at least there's a, at least um, I think in, in the U S West um, in, in the West in general, not the, just the Western United States, but the whole U S I think Christendom isn't completely dead okay. in understanding of it. And so I would say even the other 50% at least probably understand the concept that we would say that God um, cannot err, right? Right, yeah. So I think that, that gives you a good handhold for your preaching where you can right. appeal to that and go, you, you've probably heard this concept before and, and leverage that in your preaching and teaching. For sure. Yeah, and there's almost this assumption that if God is real, he must be perfect. Um, it's one of those arguments we heard in uh, apologetics class, um, that if God is real, he must be a perfect being. Um, 
but yeah, I would agree with you as far as how we engage people. Um, it's almost kind of this presuppositional approach to preaching and, and uh, engaging with culture is we're going to appeal to people as if they already know the truth, as if they believe that God is real. And therefore, he must, if he is real, he must be a perfect being. Yeah. Um, and we know that right on. John Frame would agree with presuppositional apologetics, right? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. Can we go to the Trinity? Yeah, um, go. Let's do the uh, Trinity. Yeah, the ride, bro. All right. So what we've got here, um, pretty encouraging there. Uh, we've got 90. As far as here's a statement. Let me read it for us. There is one true God in three persons, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. So what we've got is re- at least how we're reporting is 94% of evangelicals, people who are evangelical, or at least listed that on there, say this is what they believe, that they agree strongly, not just somewhat agree strongly with this statement. Uh, 53% of the population uh, overall would agree with the statement, um, which is fascinating. That's uh, that's much more Trinitarian uh, uh, alignment than I would have probably given um, really a post-Christian culture that we're in credit for. Would you agree, Matt? Yeah. And I, I think, I bet, it, I would love to see more in the statistics there. So um, as you know, Chase, for example, my wife, the only church she grew up going to is like a Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, the Greek Orthodox church is notoriously Trinitarian in its nature. Right. So they probably aren't clumped in with evangelicals, I'm assuming. Right. Um, I grew up going to Catholic schools. The Catholic church has right. a deep theology of the Trinity. So it's a mm-hmm. lot of messages that would not be considered evangelicals. So right. my guess is on that Trinitarian one, because that's, that's pretty specific, right? Yeah, right. That, that, that's probably people who um, maybe don't fall into the evangelical camp, and maybe that's a different debate for a different day, but probably fall sure. into the bigger umbrella of the Christian church camp right. would be my assumption there. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but it is interesting that we can appeal to this. I was just going over this with my uh, my kids this morning um, because Trinitarian thought is actually something I'm really passionate about. It's something that I didn't appreciate as a young Christian um, but I'm encouraged that at least lots of Christians, uh, at least those who would say they're evangelical, would would affirm this statement strongly. That's actually uh, pretty encouraging to me. Let's go into, oh man, there's so many good ones in here. Um, we'll just kind of go on down the list. Uh, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Let's see where that is. Impressed. All right. So let's see. The statement is God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Is Do you agree or disagree? So according to agree, let's go with agree first. Uh, the broad, uh, the majority, or I guess uh, across all options, 42% of the general population do believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. And then 33%, so a third of people who identified as evangelical, agree with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What do you think about that, Matt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, you, know, you get these moments. That's why I was like, should I do this? I'm probably going to come at some point. Um, it's the end of the day. I'm having bourbon. Um, I also p- potentially want to run for public office someday, and I'm, I can see it now. Uh, uh, this would be used against me. Right. But... Uh, I'm more afraid of God than I am of those people. So sure. um, that's all my qualifiers. <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it it, it is unbiblical. Like you, we we cannot have um, God is intensely jealous of us in a good and righteous way. Right. And that's laid out very clearly for us in Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that in other areas. We see Jesus making those commands as well. Um, you know, the, the, the classic verses about how you come to the Father, it's through Jesus alone. Right. Um, I, I, I will admit, maybe a playful theological thought here, is there's some interesting eschatological kind of thoughts around Judaism. Okay. And God bringing those people to himself. Um, I, I would say the line for me on that would be that confession of Jesus as Lord is the law. Right. Right. Like that still doesn't go away. For sure. Uh, but uh, it, it's an interesting thing. But it, it, I think that's because people in our culture, I, this to me isn't even a theological question. It's a cultural question. Okay. I think most people don't like the idea of being offensive, of telling somebody that the God you worship is a false God. Right. That's a terrifying thought, um, you know, to pick on my family a little bit. You know, I think of my mom, you know, one of the biggest struggles of if you're watching mom. Hey, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but one of the biggest struggles that we've had in talking about Jesus is um, a section of my family in Mormonism, where I believe that that is a divergent view of Christianity. that does not honor the gospel. And my mom yeah. has such a hard time. She loves my family so much going, well, you know, can't they get to heaven too? And, those kinds of questions are, I think that's more of a cultural response out of people. Yeah, I think so too. And it really gets into kind of our culture where, you know, in Boulder, we see a lot of people who uh, value um, tolerance and value kind of inclusion. And, and of course, as, as Christians, we, we value that in a, in a particular way um, that we, that we can all come to Jesus and we can all repent of our sins and be saved in Jesus. So there is an inclusive nature uh, to Christianity in that way. Um, but yeah, it would be hard to square up the teachings of Jesus and Christianity with this belief. I think the, what's interesting about this for me, Matt, is that in the middle of it, and this kind of speaks to our job as pastors, um, you've got a lot of people who somewhat were not sure or somewhat, uh, sorry, somewhat disagree or not sure or somewhat agree. Um, that's actually a third of the responses. And so a lot of people are confused on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, almost 40 percent of evangelicals agree um, that, that, um, or I'm sorry, disagree that God accepts the worship of all religions, but you've got a lot of people in our churches, it seems, according to the survey, um, who, who would seem to be confused on this issue. And so it's obvious, it's an obvious point of emphasis. How do we do, how do we preach the gospel faithfully? Preaching Christ is the only way and do so in a way, whereas people who hold this belief or are confused on this can see the beauty of that belief, yeah. that it's, that it's not, it's not designed to uh, be be harmful in, as the way they perceive harm, but it's yeah. actually a beautiful way to worship God. Can, can I add two quick things on yeah. that? Yeah. One is being, I want to reiterate the inclusivity of Christ, right? Of how inclusive he is that like at our church, people ask me, like we get calls all the time. Um, hey, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gay. I'm, I'm um, not a follower of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm Muslim, I'm whatever, right? Can I come to your church? And the answer to that is absolutely. All people are welcome to come in. Now, are when Jesus saves, there are ramifications for that obedience in life. So that's um, that, that, that's that, that's one piece. The other thing I was going to say, if anybody watching wants an accessible resource, if you're like, 
in that those middle groups. Um, the late great Robbie Zacharias, who um, sadly 2020 has taken some of my favorite people, John Prime, uh, Robbie Zacharias, and um, and people like that. But Robbie Zacharias wrote a great book that I think is very approachable called Jesus Among Other Gods. Mm. Uh, it's really good. And then in particular in a context like uh, Boulder, he also wrote another little book. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss on the title, but it's basically it, the book premises that Jesus and Buddha are in a boat together with a person res- wrestling between Buddhism and Christianity. And it's a conversation between the two. It, it's a whimsical, fun book. But That's I was fascinating. Afraid. So That's great. Thanks for sharing those. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's see what else we got to work with here. Um, um, you know, I'm going to go to the next one. Um, this is a hot button one. So like, I'm going to admit that right off the bat. Um, number four, statement four for their survey, God created male and female. So this is really pushing on kind of a, a big topic today about gender being a social construct, uh, the gender binary being false. Um, how do people define gender? I, I was just watching a clip from, uh, Trevor Noah. Is that his name? Yeah. Um, today where he promoted this idea that, um, gender is something you decide later in your life. Um, so what we have here is that kind of statement, God created male and female, and we've got 99% of evangelicals agree with that. And then 65% of the population at large would agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by that report. What, what do we take from that, Matt? I think I've been in Boulder too long. I'm shocked. Are you? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to get into it, but if you hang out in my neighborhood for a minute, um, you wouldn't think that that many people who are just general population, let alone Christians would agree with that. I, I am agreed by it. That, 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 that is good. And, uh, you know, I think it goes down to that root thing of, Hopefully churches are still teaching, and I know that we've taught this, is um, around this idea of male and female, right, is the issue of what culture is done with um, sex and sexuality. Right. Is the idea that you that your sexuality defines who you are at a fundamental level. Right. And you say your creator defines that at a fundamental level. That is sure. to end your um, view of yourself after sexual organs and who you want to have sex with. Right. The, the sad way to go. And I'm encouraged to see that 99% of Christians would agree that I, I, on social media, I wouldn't pick up on that. So I can tell that most people are probably afraid to share that point. That's a thought. Yeah. That's an interesting observation as well. And, and, and as you mentioned, it's, it's interesting if, if 99% of self-identified evangelicals uh, believe this statement, you know, overall, uh, you would you would hope that would be good news for the church, and and by all means, we can we as a church can and we as pastors can do a better job of teaching what is male and what is female, and and what does that mean? I've been reading a lot of that from a, um, a theologian named Anthony Bradley. He writes a lot on biblical masculinity in a way that's not uh, typically when we talk about biblical masculinity or when you when you hear it in the church, it's kind of upholding this kind of traditionalist view from like the 1950s, 1960s of what it means to be a man. And I think Anthony Bradley does a great job of, uh, of highlighting what biblical masculinity is. So even, even if there is agreement on this, I think that there's definitely room for improvement in, and at least my preaching, because that's something I'm trying to, uh, yeah. to grow in and articulating well. Mm. Um, let's see, there's one I wanted to get on here. It's further on down. 
Oh my goodness. There's just so many to explore, Matt. Um, <laughs> and we could be on this for a few hours and we're not going to do that. I, I, I will not do that. Let's go. Oh my God. Are you seeing these as I scroll down? I can't really see them that okay. well. So I'm just going to read some that I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to click on them just, just right now. Uh, one says abortion is a sin. Um, one says gender identity is a matter of choice. Um, one says the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. Um, so these are, they're asking a lot of questions that uh, would be considered hot button issues. One that I think I sent to you last night was question, where was it? It was the question about the church, um, whether worshiping at home with my family. I think it's question 20. 20. Here we go. So the statement is worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, this has been a huge issue this year because we have had to worship with one's family with lockdowns and these kinds of things. But this is the just the statement. Do you agree or disagree? Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. So here's here's we'll look at the evangelical response. Uh, 20% would say they strongly agree with this statement. And then 19% would say they somewhat agree with this statement. So there's a, a 39%, 40% of people say, yes, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, on the other end, you've got 55% that would either somewhat or strongly disagree. Um, it's actually quite polarized on these responses. But what what is your take on that with, with 39, almost 40% of people evangelicals, I mean, saying worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. What do you think about that, Matt? Dude, I want to like grab a microphone on this one. Like I want to a rapper in the studio <laughs> laying in and stuff. Um, no, that is not church you at home alone or with just your family. Um, I get it that at times you have to do that, but there is no replacement for the church and you should stop it and join your local church. <laughs> Hot text from Matt. No, no, I mean, like a more nuanced, let me be more, um, uh, more better, <laughs> more better, more, more better, um, uh, is I get it. I, I get where people are coming from and I, and I don't even blame people all that much. I think the church has really flunked out on this. Mm. Uh, we have this conversation all the time. We're, we are a non-denominational church, the church that you and I lead the well. And there's um, liabilities found in that, right? Where it's they don't understand the importance of the gathering of the body. If anything, I think COVID has kind of re-taught us that, that being together matters. I know for our church, we haven't taken communion um, during the lockdown until we can be together this Sunday. We're doing it for the first time, I think, because we'll be gathered together, right? That's right. Yeah. There are ordinances to be practiced amongst the body are only really truly fully happening. I believe the grace of God is poured out on those moments in a unique and powerful way. Mm. Um, you know, and so you just being at home, you're really just robbing yourself of all that God would have for you um, in there. And so that's a, that's a nicer approach, but sure. Get your butts to church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely discouraging. And, and this is something we butt up against in Boulder all the time with hyper individualism, um, kind of spirituality being a buffet and and you know our church made the decision to offer online services um, really immediately we were like this this needs to be available to people we need to uh, feed people with preaching and community and 
what little connection you can offer. But you and I are both of the same mindset. Our elder team is of the same mindset that, you know, that worshiping alone or with one's family is not a valid replacement for attending church. Can it suffice for a season? Um, sure. You know, I, I, I suppose it could, but, but there is something, uh, there's a, a couple of resources, Glenn Packiam, he's a pastor at New Life in Colorado Springs, um, actually did a lot of research on kind of what happens when we get together in person. Like why is, for example, why is watching a live concert all, that may be fun, but watching it on a TV, um, kind of reliving the experience or watching Led Zeppelin or whatever live concert you would enjoy on TV, John Prine for you. Mm-hmm. Why is that less satisfying than being in person with other people at a concert? And so sociologists and anthropologists try to explain this from a kind of mm-hmm. scientific standpoint. What is what chemically goes on in the brain when we gather? But as Christians, we can go, it's not just chemical, it's a spiritual thing that happens when we worship God together. There's something unique about when God uh, when we worship God together, when when we encounter God in a fresh way with the gathered uh, saints uh, under the leadership of a local church. So, yeah. Um, let me interview you about this question real quick. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. So there's implications of you viewing that you can worship alone or at home, right? Yeah. One of those would be, well, why join a church? Yeah. Uh, one of those would be, why submit to church leadership right so where does authority and membership play into this kind of question like yeah, what we're that's, out on there no that's a great observation because it does play into when paul and uh, other new testament writers talk about shepherding the flock that's among you mm-hmm. um it's kind of important to know who's in the flock that's been one of the biggest um the most how do you say it, disappointing things about the season is you don't get to see the people who, as a pastor, you're responsible to God for. And so uh, to join a local church, to covenant with a local community in that way is is important for your spiritual health. Um, John Piper has said, um, you, can, you can claim to be part of the body of Christ if you are part of a body of Christ. And so this it's this idea that in order to claim that you're a Christian, it is essential that you identify with a local visible expression of Christianity and that participating virtually, um, you know, listening to a podcast in the mountains, that's not an adequate replacement for being part of a local body. Um, and so that gets into membership and lots of churches do membership differently. And we've, we've, uh, we haven't necessarily gone back and forth on our conviction regarding membership, but definitely it's, it's been a, a process of learning how to do that. Well, what does responsible membership look like? Um, and we're always trying to grow in that. Um, but that's why we at The Well really do emphasize, hey, being part of a local church, it's important to kind of submit yourself to, uh, uh, honestly, authority, leadership, uh, God-given leadership. Um, that's why you and I both, we so highly value the authority of older, wiser uh, people in our life. Uh, we look to them to guide us and to help us make decisions and even to care for our own souls um, because we know it's important to submit to people who are further down the road or or, or God has placed an authority over us. So. Uh, um, so yeah, that's a good observation there. Let's go to another statement. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to look at one. So the way I'm kind of deciding is what's one that's that's widely, oh, this is one that you're going to like. And I think this is one that actually you and I, um, it's not that we're going to disagree on. We might just have different interpretations of. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so the statement is this statement 23 says churches must provide entertaining worship services if they want to be effective so churches must provide entertaining worship services if they want to be effective so what we've got is um amongst people who report as evangelicals we've got 50 percent disagree with that statement um 19% somewhat disagree. So we've almost got 70% of evangelicals disagreeing with the statement that churches must provide entertaining worship services if they want to be effective. On the other end, you've got 26% uh, somewhat or strongly agreeing that yes. So a quarter of evangelicals would say, yes, churches must provide entertaining worship services if they want to be effective. What do you think about that? All right, I'm calling BS on this one. Are um, you? Here's why. Okay. Here's why. I do our membership interviews. You do our membership interviews. Yeah. We see countless people. At, we do a thing called Starting Point where people get to come and share. We get to share like how we're not like an event necessarily driven church. We are. Um, we basically do two things. We do groups and we preach, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what right. we do. And, uh, and, you know, like the mission, the mission, the mission. And people have countless, countless times looked at us and be like, that's so refreshing. That's so great. Right. And then they're like, you're not entertaining enough when they leave your church. That's right. So I think they like the idea of that. Right. I don't think they want that. That's funny. We, we live in a culture that's so entertained mm. that I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying, sure. you know, hey, there's a reality where it's like, we've got to do this skillfully and well. Or I, I mean, that's one of our one of our big leadership values at the Wells: appropriate excellence right? mm. for our size and who we are. Like, are we doing it as well as we can? I think sure. that's the most effective way for a church to lead. Um, obviously, because that's one of our values. But uh, right, yeah, I think people are confused by that question. Yeah, I think so too. Because what does it mean to be entertained? You know? Yeah, I mean, like. We're good preachers, but there's better online. For sure. You know, so um, we're lucky that we have great music and we have talented musicians and um, all that stuff. But um, I don't know, but like it does, like there is a bottom line. Like if you go to a church and like their music is just, it's like so painful to sit through. I'm not saying God can't be honored in that. Like I, I worshiped for years in a church that was like, Oh man, it was brutal to get through it. And I learned to love God a lot there. So not, For sure. but it's not the easiest thing when you, if you, if the question is effective, my mind goes to, are people growing? Are they, or are they distracted? And is yeah. it an environment where I can invite my neighbors and my friends to come and be part of it? Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great point because it's kind of a two part question. What is effective? What or what is an entertaining worship service? What does that mean? And then what is effectiveness? That's a huge tension that you and I both have wrestled with in ministry is what does it mean to be effective? And for us, I think, you know, we want to talk about faithfulness and fruitfulness. We want to talk about being faithful to the gospel and we want to talk about being fruitful and not fruitful in the sense of numeric growth, although that could be a part of it, but fruitful in the sense of, you know, really, um, helping people grow in Christ likeness. That's a huge part of it. Um, 
but yeah, this idea, I was actually talking about this with a worship leader at our church last night, um, that I want a church, um, and maybe, maybe this is where we would not see eye to eye on it. And that's totally fine. But like, let's say Wyatt, your son and Knox, my son, start some kind of youth worship band when they get of age to, to have a worship band. We have other kids join and they run that in the youth ministry. And then, you know, we do one Sunday a year where they come on and they do our worship in kind of what uh, what's typically called big church, adult church, whatever it is. Um, do we have a church culture that will put up with that? Right. Have we built something to where that's acceptable? Um, and that's Probably not not. <laughs> right. And and that's not necessarily bad. It's just like, you know, w- what does that mean for people's part- ability to participate in the worship ministry? What does that mean for people's ability to participate in worship at all? Because um, like you mentioned, we've both been part of, um, you know, not maybe not excellent worship experiences. Heck, I've led worship at the well when we first started. It was not excellent. You know, yeah. it was not entertaining. It was distracting. You did um, great, Chase. Sure, great. sure, 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 sure. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's it's interesting um, to uh, to think about like what is what is an entertaining worship service uh, mean. Let's go back to uh, um, kind of the statements. Um, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Let's do two more, and we'll okay. kind of wrap it up. Cool. Um, and I and I'm going to intentionally avoid kind of some um, hot uh, button issues um, because I'd, I you know a lot of these are better dealt with pastorally one-to-one. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and actually we've talked about these from the pulpit anyways, and maybe there's another podcast uh, where we, uh, where we talk about it. Um, but let's do the Holy spirit is a force, but is not a personal uh, being. Um, that that's an interesting statement to, uh, uh, to think about because a lot of people don't know how to think about the Holy spirit. Um, You've got the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. That's statement eight. And so kind of the the way it's set up, um, you've got strongly disagree would be 38% of evangelicals. You've got 38% would be strongly agree. Um, and so it's a really interesting way to talk about... Um, the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a personal being. In fact, that goes back to the statement we originally talked about, which is the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It's He's a person of the Trinity. Um, and so the difference between a force and a being is really important to consider, um, especially as we um, kind of lead and preach. Um, a being is insinuates relationship. This is what we imply when we talk about the Trinity, is that a being insinuates uh, relationship. And so, um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's really important to, to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a personal being that we can relate to the Holy Spirit and not just resort to some kind of force force. I was actually watching star Wars, uh, with my kids on Sunday afternoon after we, uh, we had church and the Holy Spirit being a force kind of gets to this weird kind of it's out there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's something that you can't experience or relate to. You can tap into it. And so you've got people who strongly disagree with this statement, but you've also got people in churches um, who would say, you know, look, the the Holy Spirit is a force, 
that you can encounter. And it's almost this flippant attitude where, um, hey, the, the force is out there. It's kind of like Star Wars speak. The force is out there. It's on you to tap into it, to learn the right ways to engage it. But it's not a personal uh, being. So we've got kind of a split decision on this one, Matt, with um, 38% saying they strongly, like this is a very contentious issue in our churches, strongly disagree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. And then 38% strongly agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. So what is your kind of take on that? Yeah, I guess I would just say on that one that, I mean, from my take um, is that I guess for me, it's probably more or less just a lack of knowledge than anything else. Right. It's not a, uh, I, like, I, I don't think anybody would really like battle against like, oh, learning that God, the Holy Spirit is a person in, in there. I think it just speaks to the lack of Trinitarian teaching and proper teaching. Like you had me on your first um, podcast zero, right? Right. We, we talked about the patristics yep. and one of the biggest battles in the patristic era was Trinitarian theology. For sure. And we talked about already, so I don't have to bring it up. You can go listen to that. But that idea that like, hey, Trinitarian theology matters, and you see it, it play out there, is when yeah. people start viewing God, the Holy Spirit, as kind of like a, I don't know, it sounds more Buddhist or something than right. uh, Zen, something than Christian. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's really important to go back to Trinitarian thought, because you've got all sorts of ways, modalism, uh, Arianism, all these different uh, heresies that for most of us, we just kind of go, yeah, yeah, that was back then. But these actually matter. And I wish we could, you know, maybe we should do a whole sermon series on the Trinity. I think that might be a little too much uh, overall, but it's, I think these are important issues. We could tease it out to how people are, uh, how it affects uh, people's life. Um, let me find one more on here that I think that uh, we'll both kind of agree on. Man, I, I could do this with you all night. This is really fun um, because there's so much in here that that applies to Christians. Um, you know what? Let's do this one. Um, question 21 says this. Statement 21, I'm sorry. Statement 21 says Christians should be silent on issues of politics. Okay, so Christian, whether you listening or Matt or me, Christians should be silent on issues of politics. The survey... Um, 60% of self-reported evangelicals uh, said they strongly disagree with this, that Christians should not be silent. In fact, 43% of just the general population disagreed with the statement. Um, if you broaden it to say somewhat disagree, you've got almost 80% of Christians somewhat or strongly disagree with the statement. And then you've got well, what is that? Uh, 65%. So two thirds of people uh, somewhat or strongly disagree with the statement that Christians should be silent on issues of politics. Um, and it, the other two are very minimal. I mean, we're talking um, 12% actually strongly disagree. So maybe these are more Anabaptist kind of minded people, um, which may be a, a misrepresentation of that position or denomination. But uh, Maybe Mennonite would be a better way to put it. But Matt, when you when you kind of hear the statement and these kind of results, what what are, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, you you know me. I clearly believe that Christians should be heavily involved in all areas of politics. I think Christians should be heavily involved in all areas of life, 
that does not require them to sin. Um, right. right. Like that's, that is our gospel witness. Um, that is good. And that's not just our witness for the, like the, the classic notch on the belt of getting some people saved. That is at, at the end of the day, do we actually believe that the gospel will lead people to living better lives and they're living without the gospel? And the answer to that is yes, because the gospel isn't something just for the future. It's something for here and now is to have life and life to the fullest. Right. And so, no, I'm, I'm not pushing for um, a fully Christian society where, um, I mean, we saw how that went in Geneva. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like uh, um, that, that's not what I'm calling for. But, man, um, to, to not have a voice. That's like, especially if, if, you, if you're watching and you're in the United States, you are part of the republic. And that's what makes a country like the United States Great. That's the things that we have to realize more than we've ever realized before, particularly in such a polarized um, culture and society that we have right now. Right. That yeah. We need to be a people that aren't just silent and sit by. But like if, if we really want peace in places like we see out um, like unrest, in like Portland and Seattle and, and all these places in Kenosha, then, mm -hmm. well, you know what? We know the Prince of Peace. We should bring that into politics, into policy makings. I've heard a lot of people with a lot of the racial stuff we have going on. Like, I believe we've not lived up fully to the ideals laid out in the Declaration of Independence, right? We haven't right. really lived up to that yet. And a great way to do that is through Christian principles. Right. All people are made in the image of God. Yep. So value, dignity, things like that. So if we're not there, um, I'm not saying other people can't bring up those values, but Christians have to. Yeah, for sure. And this, yeah, that's a great point. And I think that this gets into issues of natural theology and, uh, and in political engagement, I think it's really common. I, I remember listening to Christian artists in college and other authors in college. And, you know, a big, a big thing that at least millennial Christians have heard, like you and I, is that, you know, you can't legislate morality. And, uh, and so the idea behind that statement is like, you shouldn't try to make people who are not Christians uh, follow Christian uh, what you believe is a Christian rules or laws. And, and of course the rebuttal to that would be that all legislation is moral. There, yep. there is no legislative uh, kind of statement or, or decision made that doesn't have a moral uh, backbone to it or underpinning to it. And so you, you actually see what's interesting today with, with political engagement. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of different voices either coming together or coalescing uh, depending on their view of the world, depending on worldview um, you'll see atheists and, and Christians get together in kind of a libertarian mindset or agnostics in that way. Um, you'll get people who are passionate about social justice and people who are Christians kind of get together because they both care about people and want the best for people. Um, but, but I think for me, I'm passionate about natural theology and how natural law plays out in, uh, in the way we engage in public discourse. Um, because of course you and I believe that, that, that Jesus, like you said, he didn't just offer us hope, uh, for, for the afterlife, but he offers us hope here and now and, and our kind of our Christian principles should lead us to engage in a, in a constructive and engaging way mm -hmm. in the uh, political atmosphere. So, so yeah, I would agree with you on that for sure. Yeah. Well, that's kind of uh, that kind of gives us a good taste. It's really, you know, this podcast was mainly an attempt to get people to check this out because for you and I, um, what we've kind of known from the beginning of the big button issues, the hot, hot topic issues in our culture 
are going to be ecclesiology, the study of the church, anthropology, uh, what does it mean to be a person? Um, and for me, it, uh, is harmati- harmatiology, which is the study of sin. What is sin? Um, because if you look at another statement on here, as far as the goodness of people, this is one Kim and I, I was cracking up about last night that I read, um, that most people, uh, let me try to find it, what question it is. It's funny, I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast while you listen to that. Yeah. And he always talks about this, about like how people are just good. Right. They're just good people. And I'm like, well, that's a, that's a bold statement. Yeah. And in and, and this question, statement 11 says, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. If you come to the well, that's not something you're going to hear. Like that's just not, at least from the pulpit, you know, that's not... I think there's such a balance to be found in the beauty of God's word where, of course, like when I, when I talk to my kids and I talk to them about sin in no way do I want to reinforce that they are not valuable and worthy of dignity and respect. And when dad yells at them or, or loses temper, that is not the way we should treat a fellow image bearer. No way. And, and all of us are totally depraved. All of us have no hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ and, and sin affects everything. And so there is a balance there. I think most people just want to find, uh, they want to believe the good. And that gets into almost the political vision. Like, what do you believe about people? Are people basically good or basically selfish and, uh, and sinful? But, but yeah, that's, those are topics we could discuss for another day. These are things that come up in our preaching ministry. These are things that come up at the well often. Um, and so thanks for, uh, for kind of doing this kind of reaction or kind of response video to, uh, to these statements with me, it's been fun. And yeah. uh, maybe we need to do a follow-up if, if enough people kind of chime in and say, Hey, we want to hear what you guys think about this issue. Uh, we'll have to decide uh, how wise that might be for us. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for so much, so much for joining me for the podcast, Matt. Yeah. I just hope you don't get canceled, Chase. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for tuning in uh, tomorrow night. We'll actually have another guest on the podcast. Um, The next episode will involve Dave Moreland. We're going to talk about social justice with Dave Moreland, Dr. Dave Moreland down at Fellowship Denver. So I hope you'll tune in then for that. Until next time, thanks for being here.